I wrote in an outline, a 10-page outline, so that I understand the big points of where to get to. But as I was writing it, the day-to-day getting to it, I would think, oh, this happened to me. This uncomfortable moment happened to me. Where can I put it in Pony's story? I'm Michael Tamblin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. We make e-readers and apps, we sell e-books and audiobooks, and we build technology that helps people spend more time reading. One of the best parts of the work we do is that we get to talk with authors about their books as well as the books that shape them as writers and as readers. Welcome to Cobone Conversation. My guest today is Tobley McSmith. Tobley's one half of the creative duo behind, I think, seven musical parodies produced for the stage, including National Lampoon Presents Bayside the Musical, Showgirls the Musical, and Friends the Musical, and I cannot properly express the number of exclamation marks in each of those titles. A Texan by birth and a New Yorker by choice, Tobley is the author of the young adult novel Stay Gold, a coming-of-age story about Pony, a trans boy making a fresh start at a new high school, and Georgia, a high school cheerleader starting to think about the world beyond the squad. It's a love story. It's a high school drama. It's a story about characters wanting to be seen as their true selves. It's a story anybody who went to high school can relate to. Tobley McSmith, welcome to Kobo. Thank you for having me. That was an amazing intro with, with a lot of exclamation points from my side now. Yes. We're here to talk about your new book, Stay Gold, but that is just the latest thing that you've done. You have written musicals. You are a comedian performance artist. You have been sued by Andrew Lloyd Webber, and there is a day job in publishing hidden in there somewhere as well. But before all of that, you were a kid growing up in Texas. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, uh, I grew up in Austin, Texas, um, which is a great city and my family still lives there. And so I'm so happy to go back. I love the live music and the nature there. But back in the 90s, when I was growing up, you know, I had a lot of fun. I had friends, but I really didn't know who I was. And in the 90s, you know, there wasn't a lot of transgender representation in books or movies or TVs. And so there was really no label for the discomfort I was feeling. So that was always a point of confusion and and trying to figure out who I was. And that's what made writing a high school book set in Texas so important to me because I didn't come out and transition until I moved to New York many years later. So this was a moment where I put almost all of my experiences um, transitioning and, and all the things that were happening into this high school kid and kind of in a certain way relived my youth through this book and in in some points for sure you know when i was growing up i was i was kind of an odd kid from all the things i just told you and um that's where comedy really came and humor was really my sword and my shield it helped me a lot i also lost a parent when i was 11 years old and that was a really formative tough moment for me where books really helped pull me out of it. And so were you a primarily a reading kid? Were you also a music kid, a theater kid, a TV kid? What was your jam then? <laughs> Comedy Central, I remember being pivotal. I think it was new then and and just listening to stand-up comedians and maybe because they have a darker view on life, uh, I really got behind that. I loved the humor there. I did read a lot and I was, you know, I was really into self-help books as a child, which is interesting, but 
after I lost my father, I hit a very low depression and, and a lot of anxiety and kind of lost my social graces. I, I kind of wasn't able to hang around friends and stuff. And I found the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie at age 12. And I read it cover to cover. And I think I read it again. And it just helped me get that foundation of how to communicate with people again and some belief in myself, interesting enough. And I still have the copy that I read. I keep this book with me, even though it's totally falling apart. It's 30 years old or, or older, but it was so important to me back then. That's a shockingly proactive stance to take as a young, like preteen teenager. And how were you finding these books? Were you uh, were they around your house? Were you going into the library? What was your source? Yeah, who was my uh, self-help dealer? Yeah. I found that book on my mom's bookshelf. Um, she had some self-help books. I think in the 80s, there was a big self-help movement. And I think my mom collected, she's a big reader. So there was these self-help books. And I found myself just in such a low point. And I didn't have, you know, the books that uh, that I would have seen myself in. But I feel like I saw myself in a self-help book because I was able to pull myself out of the funk. And it went on from there. It was quite an addiction, actually. I had cassette tapes of self-help books that I would put on at night and I would memorize some of the phrases and I would cut construction paper phrases out and put them over my bed for a while. I had, if it is to be, it is up to me. And this is like a 14-year-old. I have no idea what my mom thought. I was up to with all this, but um, it was what I needed to survive almost was these books and these belief and myself. Did you at that time think about yourself as someone who could create works of art yourself, could one day write a book yourself, or were you just taking information in then? I think about this a lot now, but I just, I don't think I could dream that big. I think I loved comedy. I loved movies, I loved TVs, I loved books, I loved the arts, but I couldn't imagine myself doing that. And I even, I went to college in Lubbock, Texas. Lubbock, Texas is in like the top of the Texas. It's the buckle of the Bible belt of, of Texas and, um, and found myself more confused there, but I was studying business. And so I think I thought I would just stay in business and work like that. So it wasn't even until I moved to New York that I started performing on any sort of stage or thinking that way, which is wild for me to think about because now writing and performing is all I do. And how did you find your way to New York? What pulled you there? A couple of things. I love Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live was like my every week I would watch it beginning to end. That music at the end was always so sad to me because it meant kind of the weekend's over and my favorite show was over. So there was a there was a romance of New York through that show. And I also, in Lubbock, Texas, I found myself at the public library a lot. It became kind of my safe space to read books about LGBT. At that point, I was still just trying to figure things out. And to I started reading biographies. I read Gilda Radner's biography in a public library in Lubbock, Texas. And I realized that in those moments that maybe I could go to New York and maybe if I got there, I could do something performance-wise. And so to talk about your career in performance, it seems like we also have to talk about a major figure in your life, Bob McSmith, who seems like a seriously fascinating guy. Can you tell me a little bit about Bob? I'd love to. Uh, Bob is my best friend. Um, 
And so I moved to New York. I came up here with two suitcases. I had never been to New York before. And I just moved up here. I had a little inheritance from a, a grandfather passing away. And I, I moved into a two-bedroom apartment in Brooklyn and four people lived there. One person, two people lived in the hallway in alcoves. I mean, it was totally the first apartment in New York situation. And that is where I met Bob. And, you know, I did, so I played music. I played the bass. I'm very mediocre at playing the bass. And so he played guitar. And so we started kind of drinking beers and playing music and writing silly songs. He loved Weird Al Yankovic and I loved comedy. And, and we kind of just started writing these songs. And then we decided, this was 16 years ago, let's do a musical about Saved by the Bell which is crazy because I had probably seen one musical by this time. And Bob was more in that he studied acting. He went to one year at NYU. So he knew a little bit more about, about it all. But we sat down with no knowledge of how to do these things. And we started writing these musicals. And that is kind of where it went, you know. And we are, like, he is my brother. There isn't anything in the world I wouldn't do for him. And I know the same for me, which is great to have that kind of person in New York and in your life, but we just have gone through 15 years of writing these musicals and we were the ones that put them on at first. We have producers now, but we would do the marketing, we'd do the hiring, we would even do the directing, which we were really bad at. We'd play the music, we would do payroll, we would do every single element of these plays and they kept getting bigger and bigger and it was a lot of work, but we were just in it together and it was maddening and it was awesome. And it was all of those things. And it's been amazing to grow these parodies. And as you mentioned, we were sued by Andrew Lloyd Webber for Cat Dashians, which we were telling the story of the Kardashians through Cats, the musical. And um, many people found it funny, but Andrew Lloyd Webber did not. And he kept sending lawyers to our shows, which was amazing. We have so many experiences like that of these weird things happening through these 15 years of theater. And right before the pandemic, we had four shows going. We had a tour in the U.S., we had a show in New York, we had a show in the U.K., and we had one in Vegas, and they all closed, which was just, it's been a tough couple months. It's been the only couple months we've gone without theater in 15 years, so it's taken some getting used to. And even before the musicals, you were doing open mic nights, you were kind of riding that edge between like cringe comedy and performance art. And did those feed into the into the musicals or were they like a, a separate evolutionary step? I think that was us finding our feet and finding comedy. You know, we would go to open mics and do the weirdest things. We would eat a box of crowns, we Crayola crowns. We would do like the weirdest things on stage just to see what people would think by what we were doing. And that was our youth. We were so young and kind of trying to figure it out and figure out what made us feel like artists and what felt good while we were on stage. And um, I would never go back on stage and do what we did when we were in our youth. But I think it was formative for us to understand who we are and what comedy was and what wasn't funny and what was. So it's all a part of our story. But yeah, we were some weird kids for sure. <laughs> so let's talk a bit about Stay Gold. I don't want to give away too much about the story because it's excellent and it's worth discovering. But instead, introduce me to Pony in Georgia. Sure. So Pony is, and you beautifully said at the beginning, he's a transgender kid. He's, a, he's, he's transferring high schools in Texas, right? So he's going to a new high school and he decides after coming out and socially transitioning at his past school 
and getting all that kind of attention from it, good and bad, um, that he wants to go into this new school and just go stealth or hide his gender identity and just see how that is. In his eyes, he wants to be normal. You know, that's a you know, there that's a heavy word, like what is normal, but I think he just didn't want to feel all the pressures of what he went through in his past school. So he goes to this new school and he immediately meets Georgia. Um, she is a cheerleader at that school. And Georgia is, um, you know, she's she's hit the peak of popularity, which is, was so important to her at the beginning of her high school days. But now she realizes it's not what she wants. And she wants to be a writer and she wants to do these big things, but she doesn't want, she's worried about how people will view her. That's something that's very important to her. It's kind of, all, both of these characters feed into a lot of stuff I've dealt with, but Georgia is, is constantly worried about what people are going to think about her and tells little lies here and there for, for comedy and also for protection. And, and it's their love story. And it's interesting, the back and forth between them. And, you know, I really wanted to experience what Pony went through. I, want, I wanted people to see the misgendering and dead naming. Pony at the time is wearing a chest compression binder and saving up for his top surgery. He's um, dealing with coming out and, and staying stealth and getting bullied and, and tough parents. So I really wanted people to see that from Pony and also from Georgia, who was someone that really liked Pony and saw these things both before knowing he was trans and after. It's one of the things I found fascinating about the book is that it is a kind of a regularly realized YA romance in terms of being about pranks and finding friends and getting the right suit and the right date for prom but then woven between all of this are the serious challenges that are faced by young people who are trans like you say do you you know are you closeted are you stealth are you out compression bindings the the threats caused by depression and suicide and violence and you know, the two of those together, you know, high school romance on one hand, the real challenges faced by a trans boy on the other, just uh, like animate the whole story and, and propel it through. As you were writing this, how much of the plot was in your mind in terms of there are these issues that I want to make sure get expressed and how much of it was I've got these two characters and I want to see what happens to them? So good question. And Stay Gold is the first book I wrote. So when I was approaching it, I really was just trying to, I wrote an, an outline, a 10 page outline so that I understand the big points of where to get to. But as I was writing it, the day to day getting to it, I would think, oh, this happened to me. This uncomfortable moment happened to me. Where can I put it in Pony's story? Like he gets pulled over by a cop one time and his, you know, his, his dead name is on his ID and it was a stressful moment for him. Like these little things. And especially when I first transitioned and came out, I was dealing with a lot of what he was going through. And so those things just kept coming to mind and I kept interweaving them into this outline that I had already kind of set out for the story. And that felt like the really right thing to do with this. Before this book starts, as you say, Pony comes out as trans in his previous high school. Now he's moved to a new one. He's trying to go stealth. You waited until your 30s and you know, everyone comes out in their own time and in their own way. But was this a bit of a, a look at what might have been for you in a different time or in a different place? 
A hundred percent. And I wish, I mean, I'm so happy for how things have changed and how forward we've come. We still have a lot of work, a lot of education and awareness and understanding for trans and non-binary people, but we've come to this so much of a better place and for the youth today, right? You know, I think about biased a lot and what I was kind of taught by the media and what I was taught by growing up in Texas about, about who I was. And I truly believed when I moved to New York that I was born in this body and it was up to me to learn how to live in it. And that is something that I had to untangle and it took many years. It took meeting trans people. It took talking to them. It took thinking through things and being brave enough, you know, to come out to my whole family. To come out in the theater world was fairly easy because it's such an open and welcoming community. But I also worked at a day job where I was going to have to announce this and be very visible as I transitioned, you know, and that was really hard. It kept me back, I think, for years from actually transitioning. And I finally, it just got to a point that I, I had to do it. I wasn't happy. You know, the depression was there. Everything, every stat that you see on trans people, like it's very true. We go through so much and it took me a long time to get there. And I absolutely wish I could have in my high school days and gone through it, but this was a way to really live in that for me, you know. Was that part of what made you decide to write this as a novel for young adults? You you could have written an autobiography, you could have written a novel for adults. Was expressing those challenges to young people something that made you want to choose this audience? Yes, I, I truly, it was... Um, so I worked at HarperCollins, I think, as you mentioned earlier, I worked there for 16 years. And I remember the moment exactly that this book came to mind. We were at our sales conference and they do different presentation. And I've worked in adult books my whole time there. But the kids department and YA department was talking about their own voices initiative, OWN, own voices. At the time, they were, they were really highlighting The Hate You Give. That was the big book at the moment. And I just, I realized in that moment and hearing about the stories and the different books that I had a story to tell and that, you know, I would want to have read this when I was in high school. I would have wanted to seen a character dealing with and going through things that I was thinking about. And so it became very important to write for that audience and also for a book that non-trans or non-binary, like cisgender people could read and understand the trans experience a little more. So in that moment, sitting there, I realized I wanted to write this book. And YA is just, YA is a wonderful category where people are telling beautiful stories of different experiences and backgrounds and hardships. And I think it's such an honest way to tell it. And there's still so much hope in high school, I feel like. And so it just felt right. And the story kind of just started coming to mind. I always knew he was named Pony. I always knew for some reason she was named Georgia. And, um, and the story kind of lit up in my head from there, and it just became this thing that I had to do. I had to write this book. You're absolutely right. One of the things that I found so interesting about the YA category is this explosion of diversity that dwarfs in a lot of ways even what's being written on, on you know, the adult side of the publishing fence. And I'm my daughter, who is gay and is out and is constantly bringing home new books about different kinds of experiences from the LGBTQ world, from the trans world. And I'm like, 
what an amazing resource just to be able to have the ability to see yourself in the books that you're reading in a way that even 10 years ago you wouldn't have had. And it's like, it's an avalanche of new voices and new authors. It's fantastic. It's so inspiring, 100%. And I think the adult world will take, um, are taking notes on it. And we're going to see more of these diverse stories coming out on that side too. You are a self-taught musician, a self-taught playwright, also a self-taught author. Who did you read? Who did you look to when you decided that it was time to write this book? Yeah, so I wrote, I, the first thing I read, this is embarrassing, I read How to Write YA for Dummies. I just went right to the beginning. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, I thought that was just an interesting place to look. But I had also been reading YA here and there throughout my, um, my life at HarperCollins. And the, the Hate You Give, I mentioned earlier, was just such a beautiful book. And so I started to look at those books and how they're structured. Stephen King's book on writing really helped me. And it's one of these books that when I kind of get stuck, I just pick it up and read it a little bit. I don't agree with everything he says, but I when I was a kid, I read a lot of Stephen King. I think I liked this. It always was like a dangerous loner going through something. And I think I've always felt like that too. Maybe not dangerous, but I, I really related to his characters in weird ways. One of the themes of Stay Gold is not wanting to be pigeonholed, to be defined solely by your gender identity, to be the trans kid at the expense of being everything else, and how hard it can be to break through that. Is that something that you care about? Is Tobley McSmith, author, playwright, important, or is it important right now to be Tobley McSmith, trans author, playwright, so that the next trans guy in Texas sees that future for himself? That is interesting. And I would probably say it changes every day, depending. And I, you know, when I first transitioned, it felt like everything that I was doing was this. And I just wanted to be seen for doing the other things. And I, like Pony, have been stealth in many communities. And um, I actually just like to around writing the book was bullied out of a community in New York City after a long thing. So, you know, I, I felt what he went through with going stealth. Now that I have this book, anytime I tell someone I wrote a book and they say, what's it about? I have to, I come out to them on my gender identity, which has been an interesting shift in my life. But I feel like I'm in a more, a place where I'm more secure about it. When I was just trying to figure it out and feel secure in it, I wanted people to see all of me. And, but now I'm okay with people seeing a trans playwright, trans book writer, and especially if that inspires other trans and non-binary people to, to create and see their dream through, too. Along with the book, you started the Stay Gold Fund. Can you describe that for us? I would love to. Um, so April 2019, I think I'm in the first edits of Stay Gold at this point, and our president, Trump, hands down the ban of transgender people in the military. And he pointed to the high cost of gender affirming surgeries for doing this. And it was, it was just, it was devastating, right? It was just such a setback and there's been more setbacks, but that one really hurt. And, you know, I'm sitting there writing this book about this kid who's wearing a chest compression binder and saving up for his top surgery, his gender affirming healthcare. 
And I realized I wanted to help. I wanted to help finance these. So the Stay Gold Fund is going to provide financial assistance for gender affirming healthcare for trans and non-binary people that need it. Not everybody needs this healthcare for their journey, but for those who do, the insurance is tricky, the costs are high, and we just wanna be there to help with that. But I also wanted to help remove the stigma around it. You know, these this kind of healthcare helps reduce depression, helps lessen suicides, is so important to some people's journeys. And so I wanted to bring awareness to that importance. So I created the Stay Gold Fund. We're raising money and we'll be will be financially helping and just kind of spreading the word of the importance of, of this kind of healthcare. We partnered with the Stonewall Community Foundation. So they're helping me every step of the way. And we're, we're trying to get to our first goal, which after that we'll be able to uh, give out applications and start helping people. I am giving half of what I make from the book to this and raising money as much as I can, especially right now in a pandemic. But there's more information at staygoldfund.org. Amazing. Thank you. At the very, very end of the book, in the section where it says books by Tobley McSmith, it lists two books, Stay Gold and Act Cool. But we can't read Act Cool yet. So tell me just a little bit about that. I just saw that that was added to the, yes, I saw that. <laughs> yes. So This is your publisher yeah. working for you. They're, you know, they're building the hype in advance. Exactly. That's why publishers are awesome, right? Yes. Act cool. I am writing a book right now about a transgender boy who comes from Pennsylvania and moves to New York. He's a junior in high school and he runs away from his religious parents who are considering conversion therapy. And he comes to New York and gets an audition at a prestigious art school, kind of like LaGuardia, kind of like the fame school um, to do acting. And I really wanted to write this story because I wanted to center a trans guy in New York, in theater, doing theater, something that I love and I've done for so long that I wanted to tell the story with that. So it's it's all my loves coming together. It's books, it's theater, and it's another transgender main character, which we definitely need more of those. So I'm, I'm excited. We're in edits. It has been my saving grace during the pandemic to kind of have this world to go into, especially right now when theater isn't happening. It's been a nice escape into a, a world where there is theater. And I can't wait for it to come out. I think it's going to come out next year. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you so much for this amazing book. And we can't wait to see the next one. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I I appreciate it. I had a great time. I've been speaking with Tobley McSmith about his latest book, Stay Gold. It and the other books we've mentioned here, along with previous episodes of the show, can be found at kobo.com slash conversation for more great books and more amazing authors. Be sure to catch every conversation by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen, and leave us a review. It helps other readers find us. Kobo in Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj, edited by Kelly Robotham, and hosted by me, Michael Tamlin, usually at the Kobo Studios in Liberty Village, Toronto, Canada, but currently distributed in bedrooms, living rooms, but never in closets all across the country. Thank you for listening. <laughs>